0: You're listening to the weekly broadcast of Grace Church, and independent Bible teaching church in Wichita Falls, Texas. This week we're continuing our study of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount from the book of Matthew. With this week's message, your senior pastor, Lance Bourgeois. Over the last couple of years, we've been introduced to a new phrase, I'm guessing you may be familiar with it, it's called cancel culture. It's this idea is that people can say something or do something that a group of people feel is so offensive or insensitive. Maybe it's something that they did, that they decide, hey, you need to be punished for this. And that punishing usually is some level of being ostracized, right? You're going to remove them from the group there becomes this mob mentality that you're going to do something that's going to come at a great physical cost. And it could be something that happened years ago, but in our new enlightened way of viewing the world is that we may look up and say, they should have known better back then. And so what ends up happening in this mob mentality is you may lose relationships, you may lose your job, you may lose income. There, there any number of things that could happen. And if you've seen that transpire or play out, In life, you you probably recognize it doesn't even have to be over anything specific. It could be related to gender. It could be related to politics. It could be related to race. It could be related to any ideology that you bring to the table. It's just some idea that somebody said or did something that we now view as being so offensive that we say they are just too dangerous for us. And so what we see is it's cutting down on interaction, it's certainly cutting back on discourse, and, and we're eliminating voices that may think differently or see things differently than, than the, uh, the general public. I was intrigued when I came across this quote. This is from an editorialist from the New York Times who, writing about cancel culture, made this phrase. It said, the use of the word cancellation indicates the total disinvestment in something or in anything. Now, think with me what they're saying, the total disinvestment, that there is somebody that said or did something or thought something, and then there's a group of people that says, that's so wrong, that's so wrong, let me back away from you, and I've got a complete disinvestment in you and who you are because of what you said or did. Now, it becomes a dangerous way for us to think about it because culture is deciding what we can and can't talk about. And the culture doesn't always see things the way we see things. And so as we turn to Matthew chapter 5, the question before us today is, would Jesus agree with cancel culture? Would he want to say that a person could do or say something that would be so egregious that you say, no, 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 let me move all the way back from you because I can no longer associate with you. I think he wants to say something to us about that today. As you're turning to Matthew chapter 5, let's revisit some of where we've been, because this lesson that we have today is taking place in the flow of a sermon that Jesus is giving across Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. So he began with what's known as the Beatitudes, and so as he was talking about how fortunate are people that have this characteristic, and then there are promises made to them. And then he said, this is how you walk out in the world. I'm calling you to be salt. I'm calling you to be light because the world needs salt and light. You can go back to listen to those messages. And then last week was the conversation that said, okay, what is Jesus' relationship with the law? If the law is that difficult, if it couldn't do what we wanted it to do, which was make us righteous, why have the law? Maybe Jesus is going to abolish it. And so we talked about the opportunity to say, no, Jesus makes it really clear. I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill the law. I claim I came to climb up that ladder that nobody else could so that I could offer you the gift of what it means to get to the top, to be perfectly righteous. Well, what did that take? Well, the law was, broke, was made up of 613 laws. There were 248 do this, and there were 365 do not do this. Now, for those of us that are checklist people, you can imagine that every day you sit down like, okay, I'm going to really focus on these 248 things today. I'm going to try to do all of them, and I'm not going to do these 365. I mean, how, how unnerving would that be to come up with that list and to write that down and try to say, I'm going to accomplish all of that today. Well, well, what's it about? I mean, if we couldn't do it, then why have it? Well, well, we're told in Deuteronomy, and what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all the law that I've set before you today? That's God saying, I wanted to teach you what righteousness was. You were incapable. In and of ourselves, we could never understand righteousness. God said, so let me give you a law. Let me give you a law that is righteousness so that you can understand what it means to be righteous and what it means to be in relationship with me because I'm the perfection of righteousness. And so they started trying to say, okay, well, let me kind of dumb down the law a little bit. Let me come up with what these essentials are so that I can make it manageable because I can't really climb up it all the way. And then Jesus made this statement that would have been outlandish if we think it about that ladder again when he says, you know, the Pharisees and the scribes, unless you have a righteousness that surpasses theirs, that exceeds theirs, that gets you higher on the ladder than the scribes and the Pharisees, you, you won't enter heaven. Well, I mean, that's, that's a strong statement because the moment that, that they hear, you better have a righteousness that exceeds them, they don't have any context for that. There would have been a sense of saying, I'll never be that good. I can't be as good as they do. Matter of fact, they took the law and they they kind of dumbed it down for us in this oral tradition that we could accomplish this. And then you gotta say, I've got to surpass them. Why even try? Well, here's why you try. Because Jesus said, if you want to be a part of heaven, you're gonna to have to try. And so that gets us set up for where we are today: a better righteousness, a righteousness that exceeds We're starting a series of messages where Jesus does this in the Sermon on the Mount where he says, look, you've heard this said, and you kind of felt like you could manage it. Let me tell you, what was intended behind that is much deeper than you ever thought possible. And today is the first of those. So we're going to start with Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 21. Jesus said, you've heard that it was said to those of old. You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. You've heard it said. This isn't new. You probably feel pretty good about it. Matter of fact, you look back at the law, we actually have it recorded twice for us. Once in the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20, 13, you shall not murder. Deuteronomy, which is the second giving of the law, we see it again, chapter 5, verse 17. You shall not murder. And so it'd be really easy to say, okay, let me get on the ladder, let me start climbing up the ladder, if you were to say, I've never taken another person's life, an innocent person's life. And so you start saying, okay, I'm pretty good. I'm climbing the ladder. Well, he tells us, you've heard it said that if you do this, you'll be liable for judgment. Well, what does that mean? Well, know this, we had a form of human government as early as Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. As we have here, so it's not even just the taking of any life, because this was a judicial hearing, that if you took the life of another person, it's that the government could intervene and take your life. So this isn't saying the taking of all life, this is taking an innocent life. And know this is what is the prohibition for? The prohibition is based on the fact that we are made as image bearers. We bear the image of God. And when we sinned in Genesis chapter three and walked out of the garden, the image of God was certainly marred. It wasn't as complete as it was while we were in the garden. But make no mistake, we still bear the image of God, even in this fallen state. Because the idea is this, is that that life sitting next to you that you know is every bit as valuable as your life because he or she is made in the image of God, and there is inherent value and worth in that. The idea that says that you could not live in community because you did not value other people made in the image of God is you forfeit your status in that community. The words were that strong. So when Jesus says, you've heard it said, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment, they would have been familiar with all of that. Yes, yes, yes. And I'm sure that they're thinking, yeah, I'm up on the ladder. I'm climbing the ladder. I'm doing pretty good on this one. And then Jesus is about to swing a way bigger net. And for every person that said, I feel good about my odds so far, at least I'm on rung one, here comes his next words. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Okay, see the bigger net? You took one step up, you stepped on rung one of the ladder, and you're like, okay, I'm okay. And then he says, okay, but let's be real. Let's begin with the idea that while we could say murder is the action or the behavior that took somebody's life, Jesus says there's something way deeper than that. Because murder doesn't begin when you pick up that weapon and thrust it into another person. It begins with the idea of something that originated here and in here. The wording is interesting because it speaks about a provoking to anger in this person. Now think with me, maybe I'm the only one. Let's just pretend I'm the only one. And maybe you can understand that I've had this experience in my life. Is that you've got some kind of emotion about somebody that's hurt you, wounded you, or something. And you come in church, and you see them walking down the hall, and you think, not going to walk that way. Let me walk off to the side. Or maybe you're at Walmart, or you're at the grocery store, and you think, oh, here they come. I'm about to be stuck. And you grab your phone, and you're like, let me act like I'm on the phone. And you start doing that. See, what Jesus wants to say is you heard it said that murder was wrong, and I'm here to tell you it goes way deeper than that. It begins the moment that you're provoked to anger when you see another person. See, that's a bigger net. And anybody that stepped up on rung one has now stepped off the ladder because I can't walk on this ladder. And he begins walking us through exactly what he means by this because he says, you know what, he'll be liable to judge whoever insults his brother Now think with me, if the prohibition against murder was the fact that another person is made in the image of God, and in that is where they have worth and value, the idea that you would insult another person before you would take their life, the fact that you would insult another person and diminish them as though you've got some level of superiority over them, I mean, I can't believe you think that way. I can't believe you would do that. I can't believe you responded in that way. Nobody in their right mind would ever think that way. Now, he tells you what the phrase would be if you call them, you fool. Now, I got to tell you, maybe y'all use that phrase a lot. I, I I don't know that I've ever looked at someone and said, you fool. I have other words. My guess is you do too. Somebody in the first service said, You know what? My word is idiot. <laughs> I was like, Okay. Isn't it interesting? Is that the idea that the prohibition to murder that we reduce to say, when you take another person's life, Jesus says, Let's swing a bigger net and catch the reality? Is that at any point you come to a no- the conclusion that another person has no value, they have no insight, that they have no worth, and you don't need them? so you cancel them and decide, I want nothing to do with you because I will disinvest myself from you is a problem. Because you want to talk about arrogance is that somebody that God deemed is worthy of his son on the cross, that you and I would say, I have no purposes for you in my life and God couldn't use you in my life, I might as well just completely disinvest myself from you. Those words are incredibly strong. And you and I can look up and say, well, I I don't know what to do with that. I mean, I've got opportunities to to think that people make me mad, but look, they tell you that it's a brother. It's a leveling term. God's the father. This is a brother or a sister in Christ. We're on the same ground. We're both at the foot of the cross. And for us to look around and say, I'm going to completely disengage from you. You have nothing to offer me because I disagree with them. And by the way, in that disagreement, guess who I've decided is right? Me. I'm so superior to you that I've got no use for you in my life. You just drag me down. The Words are strong. And then it goes on and says, you'll be liable to the hell of fire. That word is Gehenna, which talked about this place that was a valley just south of Jerusalem. And that place was, at least during Second Kings, a place of horrid behavior. Moloch was one of the pagan gods, and so they would, Moloch accepted child sacrifice. And so the idea was is that at Gehenna, that valley south of, of Jerusalem, is where they would offer up these children as sacrifices to this pagan god Moloch. Well, by the time Jesus is talking, they've cut back that practice. That's not happening anymore. That place is just the dump. And so 24-7, you bring your trash there, you burn the trash there. And so that place is evil, it's refuse, it smells, it's always lit, it's hot. Nobody wants to be there. And his words are, if we can't appreciate this fact of the image of God, then it's based on the fact that we don't know God. And if we don't know God, then our reality is this metaphor of that area, speaking of eternal punishment at the end times. I mean, Jesus' words are really strong. He's not shying away, and there ought to be a sense of us that says, wait a minute, are you telling me I can't be mad? No, I'm not telling you you can't be mad. And some of you may be thinking, wait, I think Jesus got mad. Yeah, he did get mad at some point. But when we come to Paul and Paul says, be angry and do not sin, you recognize that the problem isn't that we would be angry at something, it's what do we do with that anger? All of a sudden, it's the idea that I'm better than you. I have more worth than you. I have more value than you. You have no purpose in this world. You're just dragging us all down. All of a sudden, we recognize that we can be angry and not sin. Jesus was angry and he didn't sin. Matter of fact, I think we need to be angry at the things that, that makes Jesus angry. Otherwise, we're telling Jesus he's wrong. You want to talk about a superiority complex, tell him he's wrong. So when he gets angry, at something I think we need to be angry about something. So it's not that we can't be angry with, with something. It's what do we do with that anger? Well, James tells us this. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Why? Because the anger of man doesn't produce the righteousness of God. Let me personalize it, and you can personalize it and put your own name in there because I need to be reminded of this regularly. Lance, know this. Let Lance be quick to hear. Let Lance be slow to speak because Lance needs to be slow to anger because this is for sure. Lance's anger does not produce the righteousness of God. To have the thoughts, to view things, and to have a new heart that sees things the way God sees things, then that is the righteousness of God. Lord, how would you call me to step into this? Lord, how would you have me act? In and of ourselves, I don't think we're capable of knowing the answer to that question, but we go before him and we trust that he can lead us into that so that we can move into whatever anger situation is there in a way that would produce the righteousness of God. Sometimes we've got to confront things. Why? Because we need to call out to bring believers, brothers and sisters in Christ, into righteousness because something may be going on that doesn't exhibit or manifest righteousness. We're not trying to turn a blind eye to our brothers and sisters in Christ in sin. We're trying to say that our way of handling anger will rarely, if ever, produce righteousness. So we need to lean into the Lord, and what does he have for us? Because he comes out of this, and he wants to offer us this idea that says, at the cross we're equal, so how do we do this? And so he brings us to this idea of reconciliation. Now, that's where he's about to turn, but for our purposes, let's begin with what reconciliation means so that we're really clear. Reconciliation, bringing together of two parties that are estranged or in dispute. That doesn't surprise us. We're going to reconcile. There's two different parties, two different opinions. Something's created conflict. And the calling is to reconcile. So what does that mean? It means to change or exchange. What? It's the idea of changing the nature of the relationship, and then antagonism for goodwill or enmity for friendship. Attitudes are transformed in hostility. Ceases, okay? So when we have these situations going on, there's an antagonism that's existing in the relationship. If you see somebody walking down the hall and you think, let me get off to the side, let me go, I need to go to the restroom all of a sudden, you know, and you walk off in that direction. There's an antagonism, and we're going to exchange that for goodwill. That's not always easy. How do we do it? Well, Jesus is about to talk to us about that. So as he brings us into this, I invite you to look back down with me. Starting in verse 23, because it feels like a radical change of thought. If, don't murder, I'm telling you, it begins with anger in the heart. And then we get to this 23. So if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there, remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Verse 25, come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. I think he's telling us how to reconcile with two different groups of people. The first one is how do we deal with believers? He uses the term brothers there, brothers and sisters. We're all brothers and sisters under God the Father. And then he uses a second term. As a matter of fact, he uses it twice in the same verse, accuser. This isn't a brother, this is accuser. I think he's telling us, how do we act in the body of Christ and then how do we act with the unbelieving world that we are surrounded by and a part of, okay? So how do we do that? So when we come into this, and he begins with the one that I think is for believers. So if you're offering your gift to the altar and there, remember, your brother has something gift against you, leave your gift there and go. Go be reconciled. Now... In the midst of that, I've shared this verse a few times, I want to put it up again, if possible, so as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Now, those of us who are people pleasers, those of us who say, hey, you know what, just give me a little bit more time and I can fix this problem, we may have no end to our pursuit to try to reconcile something with somebody. I I think that the appropriate caveats, if you would allow me to add the words, I think that it fits and aligns with what Paul's saying, if it's possible, and it may not be. It may not be. There may come a point where you say, I just can't resolve it. It may not be possible. So far as it depends on you, hey, every one of us has that in our Bible. It may not be on your shoulders to reconcile. It may be the other person's issue that they have to release themselves. We'll talk more about that in a second. If it's at all possible, it may not be. So far as it depends on you, it may not depend on you, but live at peace with all. And so when we come into this, recognize the high priority. So look back at the verse where it tells it. so you're going to offer your gift at the altar, and there you remember your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First go, be reconciled. Think with me about how outlandish that statement is, because he says you've come to worship, and at worship, you think, oh, you know what? Somebody has something against me. You recognize this verse doesn't even say you have something against somebody else. And it doesn't even say if it's a valid concern. Something's going on. They may be upset that you have something going for you that they wish they had, okay? It doesn't even say you're at fault. It just says you go to worship and you recognize somebody has something against you. So this is how mind-blowing this is to me. You know, the idea that we would prepare ourselves to come to worship you have come to worship in this, you're at the altar, something occurs to you, and Jesus's words are, you need to leave your gift, and you need to go make that right. What's the priority? We would say, well, the priority's always got to be to worship, and I would agree that the priority is worship, but that certainly seems to limit it, that part of what Jesus is saying is that in preparation to worship, you need to be reconciled with your brothers and sisters in Christ, So if you get here to worship and you have unfinished business relationally, put your gift down and go and fix it. Now, I appreciate that he says, you don't have to carry the gift back with you because you need to come back and worship. We're not saying you don't worship. We're just saying, go ahead and just put your gift here. Put it off on the side and say, hey, don't mess with this. I'll be back. I've got something to go do. So while we were... In Israel uh, earlier in the year, we came to this place called the Pool of Siloam. Okay? Now, the pool back in Jesus' day would have been there's no water in the pool there. If you're like, where's the pool? Uh, There's no water in it, it's that area to the left. And so if you look at it, it was much wider during Jesus' day but they've preserved it so you can see it. And there are some steps that go up the back side of it, and that's headed toward Jerusalem. Matter of fact, I think you can kind of see it way up there at the top of the picture. So they had this drawing or this painting there. You can see the pool down at the bottom, and you can see the temple mount all the way up there at the top. And so you would ascend into Jerusalem. It's a long walk. It's high. Jerusalem's up high. And so that's how they would go. Now, why is that significant? I, I think a couple of things. Number one is Jesus and his disciples would have started in Galilee. It's an 80-mile walk. It's a three- to four-day walk. So they walk down. They've got plenty of time to prepare for worship, to be evaluating and thinking about what does the Lord ask of them? What are they confessing? What are they offering sacrifices for? So they walk three to four days, they get to the pool of Siloam, they do their ritual cleansing there, and then they start the steps. And they go up the steps and they get up to Jerusalem. And then they've got to go in through the gate, they have to walk to the Temple Mount, and then they go into the temple. And then they bring their gift to the altar. And Jesus' words are this After all of that, if it occurs to you that somebody has something against you, put it down. Walk back out of the temple, walk back through the city, walk through the gates, walk down the stairs, walk past the Pool of Siloam, walk back three to four days to Galilee, make it right, turn around, walk three to four days back, walk to the Pool of Siloam, do your ritual cleansing, walk up the stairs, up through the city gates, back to the Temple Mount, and pick up your gift and finish worshiping. Now, I got to tell you, there's every reason in the world that I think I look at the Lord and say, really? Six to eight days of walking? How about I just worship and offer you the gift now, and then I fix it when I get home? And Jesus' words are, no, 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 no. I want you to be reconciled with your brothers and sisters in Christ when you come to worship with me. Now, i got to tell you, maybe there's an application here that we need to, with every head bowed and every eye closed, but just a little bit so you can see. Do we need to have an invitation to get up and go reconcile something? Because according to Jesus' words, we need to be prepared to worship, and part of preparation for worship is that we're reconciled with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Those words are huge. And maybe you're sitting there saying, "Well, I don't know that anybody has anything against me." Well, then worship." The question is, if you know somebody has something against you, then you need to go to see if you can make that right. And when you have that conversation, you may say, "I don't really understand forgiveness. I don't know how that works. Well, later, you know, coming up in Matthew 6, we're going to get to this passage where the Lord's teaching us how to pray. He says, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. So we see forgiveness in terms of finances. There's like these finances involved in this. Uh, Matthew 18, we pick up the same kind of idea. And out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave him the debt. So what do we do with that? We keep seeing it as this idea that it's this transaction, this financial transaction. Because if you look up the definition of forgive, it, it gives you this, this definition. To release from a legal or a moral obligation or consequence, to cancel, to remit, or to pardon, okay? So a whole lot of words to talk about what it means to forgive something that you're releasing, you're canceling, you're remitting, you're pardoning, you're letting it go, problem with this sometimes is this, I think, our memories get in the way. Because when we come to this, I love this cartoon, you say that you forgive me, Tim, but I can't help feeling that you're still holding a grudge. Now, if you could read that his file cabinet, one drawer is mistakes, one is peeves, one is gripes. There's two volumes of faux pas, there are two volumes of grievances. My favorite is the book on the bottom shelf in the middle that says, I'm okay, you're not, right? (laughs) Because what ends up happening is every time we want to say, I need to forgive and forget. Forgetting it is amnesia. The idea isn't that we need to forget. The calling is that we learn how to release. So, with Dylan's permission, I'm going to do this, all right? This is only for illustrative purposes. This is not reality, okay? Think with me about 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient, love is kind, it doesn't envy, it doesn't boast, it's not arrogant, it's not rude, doesn't insist on its own way, it's not irritable or resentful, it doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing. So let me just give a couple of words here, I'm going to do the opposite of that, okay, so love isn't patient, it's impatient, and so I look around and think, okay, so this week Ellen's been impatient, this is only for examples, this is not real. She was mean, she was envious of me, because why not, right? Uh, She was arrogant, she was rude. This is only, exactly, and this is only an example. So imagine, when somebody comes to you and they hurt you, let's put a price tag on it because it could be a little thing. It wasn't a big deal. And I could say, well, she was impatient with me. I kind of got it, but it kind of hurt my feelings. So that's a $5 word, but when she was mean to me, that was a $1,000 wound. That really hurt, and she was envious of me. I mean, who can blame her, so let's make that 50. She was arrogant. I didn't like that at all. That was $50,000 wound. She was rude. That's one million. Now, here's the deal. Is there something about the reality that forgiveness, when somebody hurts you, they take a withdrawal out of you that the bank can't cover? And so they wound you to a certain amount. And so if it's just this, think with me, if somebody hurts you $5 worth, we don't typically hurt back for $5, we hurt back for $25. And what ends up happening is now we're just throwing grenades back and forth at each other because the account never gets settled. And the idea of forgiveness has to be this reality that says this, is that I'm going to release her from this because she can't pay this back and I can't pay it back either. Because she'd come up with a longer list with higher price tags because what ends up happening, right, is the idea of forgiveness means that I have to release her from this and remit it and say, no more. And when she hurts me, the temptation is to come back and pick it up again and look at it again and know I have to drop it again. And in the beginning, when that hurt is fresh, it's going to be a moment-by-moment decision, right? Because you're going to keep saying, no, I, I need to grab it. And then you may let it go, and then you may find out, you know what? She was mean again. Uh, guess what? I'm going to let go of that too. And the idea of forgiving has to take into account that we walk away from it, that we release them from that because they can't pay it and I can't pay it either and you can't pay it either. And the calling is we just keep feeling like, I've got to pick it up. I've got to make her pay. No, I got to leave it on the ground. Now, I got to tell you, it brings healing over time, but we've got to release it. Now, i tell you, it doesn't mean that we have to keep going back in the same way. You may want to walk a different path but you don't try to exact payment because you can't exact payment. And that becomes the reality of why we can't keep doing this stuff because it gets in the way of our relationships. It destroys the unity that we have with another person made in the image of God that is so significant that when we come to our own faith, recognize the words of Jesus to us. When, you, when Paul writes, And you who were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. Why? Having forgiven us all of our trespasses by, catch that? Canceling the debt. I I don't know how many things you would put on your list that God said, I tore them off and I nailed them to the cross. The record of debt that stood against you and me with its legal demands set aside, nailing it to the cross. That's the good news of the gospel is this stuff, Jesus doesn't keep picking up and rubbing back in our face. He's come to you and me and say, i dealt with it. It's been paid for at the cross. That's the good news of the gospel. So we're freed up because the debt's been paid. And he doesn't rub our nose in it. No, the opportunity is Jesus came. He had no record of his own debt so he could pay somebody else's debt. Because he conquered death, he offered to cover all of our debt. And he did it. And if you're here today and you say, Lance, you have no idea how long my list is, that's fine. You have no idea how long my list or anybody else's list is either. But know this, God's grace is greater than whatever your list is. And he's offered you salvation through the shed blood and resurrection of his son. That's the gift. Lord, I believe that when you did that, you did that for me and you paid my debt. If you're here today and you don't know him, know that about him. He would love for you to know that. That's how we deal with believers. And I would say, if you know that you have something against somebody, then I invite you to go have that conversation with them. Look with me, if you would, at verse 25. Now we're talking about an unbeliever. We don't use the word brothers. We use the word accuser twice. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court. The idea is something got handled. The idea is that we, the believer, is guilty, and you're dealing with the outside world, and you've done something, and that person's taking you to court. And you and I might say, well, I mean, we're kind of we're already headed to court. And Jesus' words are, hey, look, it's not too late yet. It's not too late until it gets handed over to the judge. So while you're going to court, if you know that you've done something wrong, I think Jesus' words are, step forward and own it. Hey, you know what? I'm sorry, you're right. I did not do what I was supposed to do. I didn't follow through on my word. I, I misrepresented you. I misrepresented me. I've taken something that wasn't mine. Because he said, once you hand it to the judge, the judge's gonna hand it over to the bailiff and the bailiff's gonna take you to jail. You're guilty. This isn't a question of guilt. This is you're guilty. So the invitation is, brothers and sisters in Christ, step forward, have integrity, own your part, acknowledge where you have wronged somebody and make restitution with however you need to make restitution. Because the words are, you're gonna to go to court You're going to go to jail, and you will never get out until you paid the last penny. If you owed a debt, you went to jail until it was paid off. If you had no means to pay the debt, then you will die in jail. This person's guilty. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we come to worship. If we know somebody has something against us, then make that right. If we know that an unbelieving person in our world knows that they have a grievance against us and they're right, then step forward and lead in restitution with the integrity and character you would expect us to have. I think that's the calling for what he would have for us here. Why? Because I can't come to this passage enough times to not hear Jesus' heart as he's praying for you and me, where Jesus says, I ask not only for these, the disciples gathered around him, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us. That's us. That's Jesus praying for us, that we may all be one, just as you, Father, and me, and I in you, that they may also be in us. Lord, Father, make them one, just like you and me are one. And matter of fact, as they become one, then we become one, and they become one with us. What an incredible gift. What an incredible prayer. Why? So that the world may believe that you have sent me. When we can be one, in the same way that God the Father and God the Son are one, and we become one with them, that the world may believe you have sent me. We're trying to figure out how to win arguments in this world so that we can win arguments to lead people to Christ. Jesus said, I got an easier way. Become one with each other, which is one with me and the Father, and then let's watch the world change. Which is why he says, you know what? There's more to murder than just murder. It begins here, we've got to fix this in the way that we think about somebody else and so when you know somebody has something against you leave the gift at the altar and go make it right come back and worship me but prepare to worship me with living out the reality of what i'm asking of you the glory that you have given me i've given to them that they may be one even as i excuse me maybe one even as we are one I in them, you and me, that, the world, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you have sent me and love them even as you love me. Father, that the world would know that you love them the same way you love me. What an incredible statement. So how do we live? Well, know this. I think Chuck Swindoll captures this well when he says, show me a person who's having problems with people and I will show you a person who's having problems with God. If we cannot understand or grasp that we are all imperfect, that we are brothers and sisters in Christ, that every person is made in the image of God, then our problem begins not with that person, but with God himself because of what he said to be true. And so that all matters. So how do we walk through this world? Well, I think with believers, I think the calling is this. Finally, all of you have a unity of mind. That we would live out that unity of mind, sympathy, sympathetic to what other people are going through. I don't know if you notice that, but everybody's on a journey, and all of us have struggles and pains. Even if they hurt you, they still have struggles and pains that they're acting out of. A brotherly love, I care about you, a tender heart that's receptive, and a humble mind because I'm rejecting the anger, the uh, superiority of anger, that I'm better than you. Have a humble mind. Don't repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. But on the contrary, when somebody does evil to you, don't repay them with evil. If somebody reviles you, don't, re- don't revile them back. Just a matter of fact, bless them. And you and I are like, oh, that's a little strong. Yeah. But it's capable. For this you are called that you may obtain a blessing. And then he quotes Psalm 34. And then he tells us what the blessing is that we obtain. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil you want the eyes on you? You want the Lord's eyes on you? Do you want him attentive to your prayers? Then we've got to function the way he calls us to function. How do we live in this world? We well, told us walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Make the walk in wisdom. The reality that if we're an apologetic to this world for the how we get along, then be the person that initiates restitution. Don't wait to be taken to court. Be the man or woman of integrity that God calls you to be. Represent the Lord in all of your dealings, and when you mess up, and you will, own it. Go before that person and say, "Hey, you know what? I really messed up. I'm really sorry. What do I need to do to make this right?" And let's keep it out of the courtroom. Let's keep it between you and the Lord and that individual. That we can honor that uh, honor that Lord, the Lord and that person. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. That's that word. It's not chronos. It speaks about minutes and seconds and times a day on a calendar. That word time is opportunities. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders. Make the best use of every opportunity to lead people to the Lord, to tell them to be the person that says, Lord, what do you have for me in this to represent you? Because if we can be one, even as the Father and the Son are one, then we get invited into being that one with him, and that's what changes the world. You've been listening to the weekly broadcast of Grace Church, an independent Bible teaching church in Wichita Falls, Texas. You can join us for worship Sunday mornings at our campus on Stone Lake Drive in Wichita Falls. Stream services live online at gracechurch.com or subscribe to our podcast published on Apple, Google, and Spotify. From all of us at Grace Church, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.